Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. We are really glad to be with you. And today we've got a live audience in Huntsville, Alabama. All right, very good, very good, very good. And uh, today, uh, well, uh, we never assume that people are familiar with us. So we go around the horn and introduce ourselves. So I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor and I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest just outside of Portland. I live on the normal side of the river in Washington. And uh, so I've written some books. I've been a college professor. I've taught philosophy. I've also been a, a contractor and a real estate investor, commercial real estate. So I've done a number of things. But that's, that's, uh, that's me. Uh, Tom, why don't you talk about yourself? I'm Tom Price. Uh, like Chris in being a uh, distinct kind of person in a distinct kind of environment like Washington State. I'm like that here in Connecticut, <laughs> a fish without water kind of thing. Um, <laughs> I, I, I teach uh, theology, systematic theology, Christian ethics, and uh, uh, philosophy. Um, one of the places is Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Yeah, so great, Tom. Thanks for the introduction. And Glenn, why don't you tell us about yourself, and then why don't you just go ahead and bring us into the subject of the day, because it's your day today, Glenn. Yeah, I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a retired history professor, Professor Emeritus from Central Connecticut State University. I'm a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and my main gig is as a ministry associate with Reflections Ministries. And I also do the podcast and a few other things. Right. So that's me. Um, our topic today is romanticism. And what I want to do is talk a little bit about where it came from. And there are a lot of there are a lot of things that can be said about romanticism, good and bad. So um, being who we are, we'll start with the bad and try to get to the good before we're done. <laughs> so let's, let's, um, let's start off with the, with the environment in which it, romanticism arose. Um, we're dealing with the early 19th century in Europe, early 1800s. And this was a really tumultuous period culturally in Europe. Uh, we had the Enlightenment. Um, and actually, we've moved past the Enlightenment now, and we're into the era in which more extreme versions of rationalism and empiricism are arising, things like positivism. Um, we have the French Revolution and Napoleon, uh, which spread chaos across Europe. We have also, courtesy of Napoleon, we have a lot of people who are developing a sort of nationalist idea uh, they're tired of being in empires, and they want to have their own nation states. Um, and what you get is a, a rising anti-French nationalism, actually, after Napoleon's empire. That's going to help shape romanticism as well. Then you have the Industrial Revolution, which is changing things substantially for a lot of the working class people in Europe and is producing a lot of stresses uh, within society. So <clears throat> this combination of all of these different elements uh, not surprisingly, produces a backlash. And we see the beginnings of this already during the period of the Enlightenment. Um, the Enlightenment is usually referred to as the age of reason. That's a, an old term that was used for it. But what most people don't know is that there is also a sort of counter-movement in the late 18th century that's referred to as the age of sentiment. It's where emotion and feeling and things like that are pushed forward ahead of reason. It's sort of a, a, a counter-enlightenment in a lot of ways. And one of the key figures in this movement is an old friend of ours, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I had, if I can't figure out how to get Plagan, I've got to get Rousseau. They're, they're about <laughs> at the same level. Um, so um, so what, what you see happening, like I said, is a backlash against all of these things. There's a growing emphasis on, um, well, for example, this is one of the things that arguably is positive coming out of it. You have a sort of uh, desire to return to a golden age before the stresses of the modern world. So there's a huge interest in medievalism. And you get uh, people studying, you know, the, the Brothers Grimm, who are actually linguists, go back to try to collect all the old stories that they can find. Um, you have a burst of interest in, in Arthur. You get 
uh, romantic artists like uh, Rackham and others illustrating these stories, uh, new interest in fairy tales, all these kinds of things that have been rejected by the Enlightenment. Now, one of the but, things that one of the things that we can kind of insert here is there's also an architectural uh, expression of this. So during uh, you know the colonial period and the formation of the United States, that was kind of a time in which the classical era, Rome, Greece, and sort of the what was believed to be kind of the rational sort of way of thinking about the world was lionized. And then in the 19th century, you have the rise of Gothic architecture, and you see that in some of the Gothic uh, sort of uh, cottages where you have the you know, the arched windows and stained glass being brought even into homes. And so there's a lot of, uh, you can just drive through many, you know, towns in New England and you can see, you can kind of uh, note when those houses were built based on what the architectural fads were at the time. And like uh, the middle of the 19th century, that was the Gothic period. Yeah. Uh, personally, I'm hoping that when we actually buy a house, I'll be able to put in gargoyles. <laughs> um, Here's the gargoyles. Yeah. So, um, so along with this, you, you are, th this is connected internationalism. People are looking into the roots of their own society. They want to go back to this more pristine era before all of the, the uh, pollution of modernism uh, entered the world. Okay, so we have that on the one hand, and there are genuinely good things that come out of that. But because of this age of sentiment thing that's there as well, because of the backlash against rationalism um, and with it now positivism and so on, you're also getting a rise in the emphasis, in an emphasis on emotion. Um, that that your feelings are what really matter, your sentiments. These are the things that are, are of utmost importance, not rational knowledge, not empirical knowledge, none of those things. Um, and then with this, we begin getting the rise of the idea of living an authentic life, being your authentic self, uh, which is really the high road to expressive individualism. Yeah, let me give the folks here a definition from the dictionary. It's not very, I, I think, uh, thorough or, or, or uh, complete, but at least kind of builds on what you've talked about. Uh, so when we talk about romanticism, we're not talking about romance uh, sort of genre literature for young women. <laughs> we're, we're talking about something that exists uh, in the larger culture. So uh, the definition uh, from the dictionary is a movement in the arts and literature that originated in the late 18th century Emphat uh, emphasizing inspiration, subjectivity, and the primacy of the individual. Yeah. I wanted to um, say real quickly, if it's okay, that w one of the things we've talked about on, on other shows it, uh, um, at different times is something that happened earlier in Western thought where we had kind of realism, as we talked about at a different time, a classical realism in which there are universals um, and there is a, a kind of universal logic and there are real essences and kinds and that participate in these universals. And then we have a shift where that breaks. And we called we talked about some of the aspects of that nominalism, where things come down to the individual and the particular, that there are nothing there. There is no real universals. They're, they're conventions we use to talk about them. And then um, voluntarism in view of God and humans, which the will starts to take center shape. And I think you could say that Romanticism owes a lot to reiterating that emphasis. Uh, Isaiah Berlin, who wrote a lot on that, right. uh, who's a, a philosopher at, who taught at Oxford, Jewish philosopher, but he has this quote where he says, uh, the rational, uh, I mean, the Romanticism as a movement was a passionate protest against universality of any kind. And then his second thing is the emphasis was on a free, untrammeled will in the denial of a fact that there are any true nature of things. And so their attempt, he said, is to actually blow up and explode the whole notion of a stable structure. So that was something he kind of added to the mindset compared to the Enlightenment that wanted stable structures grounded in, in an absolute. 
Well, that's a good place to sort of insert kind of the way people just on the street would talk about this. There was a time when many people in just, uh, you know, run-of-the-mill everyday life would talk about absolute truth. So when we talk about absolute truth, we're talking about universal truth, right? We're talking about a truth that's true for all, not true for some people and not for others. It's just uh, reality as such. And today we live in a world of like special interest groups and subjectivity and you wouldn't understand because you're not whatever. And so that, so, so that today we have a kind of, uh, well, uh, balkanization in just about every society where we've lost touch with things that we have in common. It's just like Tower of Babel. We, we, we can hardly talk to each other anymore because we're so wrapped up in our personal experiences and we don't think about what human nature is or what truth is or what reality is. We're just talking about what our personal feelings are and impressions are. Yeah, I was going to say, just interestingly, uh, Isaiah Berlin said that was one of the things romantic, the romantics, the true romantics would have delighted in. It was all about the fight for the particular in the individual in their own creation and self-creation. So having a society that didn't have people passionately committed to actually asserting their own will on everything in, in the conflict that arises, uh, you know, for him, that was uh, in many cases at the heart of a lot of the romantic project. Yeah. One, one of the things that might be good to talk about too, is maybe some particular examples of the way romanticism is sort of, sort of plays out in different, uh, different ways in the arts. So like when you think about, uh, you know, literature, someone like, uh, Wordsworth comes to mind or Coleridge, you know, and the poetry that the, that we, uh, you know, can see that they produce or even William Blake, uh, you know, in his famous uh, songs of innocence and, and experience, maybe it'd be good to even maybe read for folks the tiger or the lamb just to kind of play with that <laughs> a little bit. Well, actually, I would like to go to Germany first. Okay. Um, because what you see emerging in German romanticism is two different images of what the hero is. Mm. And you can illustrate both of them from the work of Goethe. Yeah. Um, the, the first of them, romantic hero type one, is the man of destiny, you know, who, who seizes the moment and moves forward uh, following his own lights and, and doing what he believes is right and ends up triumphing. Our best example of that is Faust. In the original medieval story that Goethe based his poem on, Faust ended up damned, but Faust ends up redeeming him, in a sense. Um, he escapes from the damnation that he brought on himself uh, because, well, fundamentally because of love, but um, he, could, he didn't want this kind of, well, man of destiny, this kind of hero. He could not bring himself to have him end up um, in hell hmm. because that is not, that this is the triumphant hero. Okay. Now, the, the other is a novel hero that's much less well-known. This is Romantic Hero Type 2, um, which is uh, called The Sorrows of Young Werther. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, now, in the, the Sorrows of Young Werther, I'm not going to yeah, go through them. Now, young Werther is like woke before his time. It's, he's <laughs> kind of, uh, he's, he's woke in, this, in sort of the artistic sense of sort of, sort of, sort of self-destruction, self-pity, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, basically, you know, his parents want him to get a lucrative career. He wants to be an artist. He fails as an artist. One thing after another, his entire life is going wrong one step after another. Everything he does, because he's trying to stay true to himself, everything that he does fails. He won't, uh, you know, he won't play games. He gets a job with a count, and, but he won't play the court game. So he ends up being basically ostracized. Uh, uh, all kinds of things like this, one thing after another, after another. And the thing that ends up uh, being the uh, cherry on top is he falls in love with a woman who is engaged to be married to someone else. And of course. ultimately, when he realizes he can't have her, he decides that the only solution is to kill himself. Now, now this, this may not seem like a hero, but this becomes a type 
in romantic literature. This, um, you know, you've got the you've got the man of destiny on the one hand and the wuss on the other. <laughs> now, with that, but the, but there is a kind of uh, noble, I guess, uh, poet kind of kind of he was true to his poetic vision to you know his own impoverishment that and that's what of. makes him that's what makes him a hero to goethe now yeah. the interesting thing is when the novel came out there was a spate of suicides across germany of young men right wow well it's it's well it's i mean you see you see that with a similar emphasis today you i mean we just had uh uh you know uh, statistics come out on the level of uh, attempts at suicide among young people, where all the emphasis is on being your true inner authentic self. And this is one of the things I think that arises then, this whole notion of the individual self, the self as uh, self-constructed piece of art, and that martyrdom or or self-sacrifice becomes something uh, good for its own sake if it is carried out no matter what you're martyred for, as long as it is saying true to who you have, uh, you know, who you truly are, um, whatever that may be. So it's radically particular, individual, and it, it doesn't really have uh, doesn't really have uh, an orientation towards any higher good than than the self and its authenticity. Right, and and the interesting thing there is the exception to that is someone who gets murdered as a Christian missionary or something like that is not really considered to be particularly admirable. That's right. Because, well, they're not being true to their authentic self. They're being true to something outside themselves that that they just sort of force themselves into the mold. That isn't really who they are. That's right. I think what's at work... What's at work underneath all of this, though, uh, as you've noted sort of early on, is that there's a kind of Rousseauian un- sort of understanding of authenticity, which is sort of the spontaneous sort of emotional sort of surge that comes from within that's pre-rational. In other words, it exists before you think. And then what comes later is, uh, you know, your thinking and what you're supposed to do with your thinking is justify whatever this kind of inner kind of movement is and figure out ways to sort of play it out. Um, we see that on a mass scale in our society now. But I, I guess you know, one of the things I'd like to kind of get into and in bringing up Germans made me think about other uh, you know, forms of art. Uh, Beethoven, for example, is a great romantic composer. And if you want to contrast him with what would be understood as being a more classical composer, he'd, have Mozart. So if you take, you know, Mozart and you, you think about what Mozart accomplishes in say the Jupiter symphony, it's very moving, but it's also mathematically beautiful. There's a kind of structure to that, uh, piece that is, uh, a celebration of, uh, sort of the structure of the cosmos. Whereas with the, with, uh, you know, Beethoven, if you take, you know, dun 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 and then this, you just have this kind of you know mm-hmm. progression where you're repeating the same set of notes in different keys and in different patterns it's a, intended to kind of d- sort of elicit a kind of a strong emotional response this is one of the things that catches people by surprise there were people that there were riots that would break out in <laughs> symf- in, in, in symphony halls across europe <laughs> when beethoven was played you know, you know about this, Tom. You're a music guy. <laughs> but yeah. it, was, it was just so, at, at the time, it was so uh, kind of uh, uh, kind of breaking the, kind of the pattern that people uh, knew and believed in that it was, it was really radical. And then um, when we think about the visual arts, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people love the Impressionists. But Impressionism is a kind of romantic uh, approach to the visual, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, painting in particular. And, you know, it's about, you know, impressionism is about the impression that light makes upon the eye and the soul. And it's a, it's not uh, as kind of a, an attempt to capture something objective. It's an attempt uh, uh, with impressionism. We think about, you know, people like Van Gogh or Monet, they're, they're going for sort of, uh, it's kind of this, uh, this sort of pre- 
rational response. Um, you know, and I, and I, and a lot of people, you know, will, will say, how dare you criticize Van Gogh or how dare you criticize money? I'm, I'm not criticizing. I'm just trying to point out what they were up to. <laughs> right. It was a very yeah. self-conscious and, thing. Yeah. We have to add one more component in there. It's the impression of the moment. Hmm. It is what they're trying to do is capture the play of light and the sense the, that it produces at a specific moment. That is why you will find paintings of haystacks yeah. that one after another, after another, because as the light progresses, the haystack changes and they want to, you know, it produces a different impression. Right. Now that doesn't mean these things are value less. It's just this, what we're talking about here is something different. And there are some interesting ways that these things reflect some positive and some negative things that are going on, you know, in culture, generally speaking. Yeah. As far as Beethoven goes, the term that they used uh, uh, in Germany was Sturm und Drang, which means uh, uh, storm and stress. <laughs> yeah. And you know, and again, in a sense, we're back to Young Werther. Yeah. Although you could also find elements of this within Faust as well, that, um, you know, it's this, well, very tempestuous kind of music that is, um, it, that, that Kenneth Clark said that the romantics were obsessed with the sublime. Right. Waterfalls, um, thunderstorms, um, mountains, these kinds of things. And that shows up in this uh, Sturm und Drang uh, in, their, in their music and in their literature. Now, now uh, define uh, the sublime for our listeners. Uh, the sublime is something that is beautiful, but it actually is something that sort of transcends beauty. It is something that is larger and grander that so that the basic category of beauty almost doesn't apply to it because it, it transcends it. It goes beyond it. You know, so so think of the feeling standing beside a great waterfall, the feeling that that gives you. Or a couple of days ago, I was in Orlando, Florida, and we had one heck of a thunderstorm. And, you know, that thunderstorm, it would be a good example of something that lifts you outside of yourself. Um, that's the sort of thing that we're, that we're dealing with with the sublime. Yeah, and yeah. I, I think I like the Hudson, uh, you know, school of the, you know, painting where, where you have these vast canvases. I mean, some of them are huge. You know, we're talking about 10 feet, you know, wide and eight feet high. And they're portraying some, you know, Western landscape in there. And a tiny, you know, uh, as tiny specks in the corner, you've got a camp of human beings, you know, in, you know, sort of overshadowed by this vast wilderness. Yeah. And that's a particular, that's a peculiarly American style of romantic painting. Right. You don't find that in Europe, but the frontier is an extremely important part of the American psyche, especially during this period. Yeah. Uh, Frederick Jackson Turner actually argued that the frontier, uh, the historian actually from the University of Wisconsin, um, Turner argued that the frontier is what made America what it was. And this, the existence of the frontier was critical to America's self-understanding. So these vast vistas where you are just a small, tiny speck in it, to Turner, that is getting at the root of what America is about. And it's interesting on that point because one of the things of romanticism was this this immanentizing of the divine and and may it, almost a kind of pantheism in which the spiritual and the natural were intertwined or or one of the same. And so what you have now is this making sacred of um, so, like you say, landscapes and things like this, to where you have this almost the uh, immanentized transcendence rather than a, you know, a transcendence within the eminence it, 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 in which that space becomes almost uh, sacred that we're a part of. And so there is this organic connectedness, the thing. Um, you'll see this in theology with someone like Schleiermacher with the gefühl, the, this kind of, this feeling of absolute dependence on this uh, larger, larger uh, imminent space that we're a part of. So you have that, but then you do have just to, 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 um, to bring it up at the, you know, at some point, you do have this emphasis on the sacredness uh, of cultures and culture, particular cultures have a certain sacredness to them and they aren't all the same. And so you have this move with Herder and Hermann and different figures 
that returning to the language and the stories and the um, the folk aspects of different cultures and bringing them into the fore. Now, that would be a good place to kind of segue into the, some of the darker expressions of romanticism when we get to the <laughs> Nazis. But, but uh, before we do that, I'd like to spend a little bit of time uh, on the American religious experience and how I think romanticism relates to it. So uh, it's not a coincidence that revivalism uh, emerges at this time. Now, revivalism, you know, with uh, Cane Ridge and, you know, the sawdust trails and the camp meetings and all that kind of stuff places a, a tremendous emphasis on experience. You know, you're supposed to have this kind of overwhelming, powerful experience that reorients you. Now, I'm not saying that this is uh, completely uh, cultural in character, but it's, it's I think, uh, worth noting that this happens at the same time, and I don't think it's a coincidence. Uh, at the same time when everybody is talking about going out and sort of experiencing the sublime in the natural world, what are people doing? They're holding camp meetings in the wilderness. When people are talking about the importance of you know, uh, authenticity and sincerity, we have movements like the primitive Methodists and the primitive Baptists who are all talking about getting back to that New Testament experience that they read about <laughs> in Acts you know, 2 through 4. So there's a kind of a getting back to the garden kind of thing that's going on. And then there's this strong sort of emotional, you think about Pentecostalism. I think Pentecostalism is one of those things. Basically what Pentecostalism does, I'm going to throw out an idea here. I'd like to see what you think. It takes uh, the ecstatic experiences of kind of uh, monks and nuns and democratizes them. You know, <laughs> and says that everybody needs to have these same kinds of experiences. So what do you think about that? You can actually make that argument about the Reformation. You know, that the Reformation was doing the same thing, taking the spirituality of the monasteries and, and making it for everyone. Hmm. I think, though, that when you're looking at the roots of revivalism, you have to realize that there were, well, first of all, the roots really are in Puritanism. The Puritans insisted on conversion, um, a, a conversion experience of sorts, far more than anybody else within the Protestant tradition. That then gets picked up in the evangelical awakenings, the Wesleyan revival, uh, the Welsh revival, the Great Awakening in America, and so on. The difference between that and what you see in the Second Great Awakening is those awakenings were based really on detailed exposition of scripture and probing sermons that challenged people to look at their conscience, look at their behavior, look at their thoughts, and recognize what those look like to God. Whereas in the Second Great Awakening, there is a much more emotional style of preaching. I mean, uh, Finney even said, if you take the following steps, you will get a revival. And it's really psychological manipulation. Yeah. And Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, was really trying to distinguish between true and false revival with things like the emotion of the, uh, the religious affections. How do you tell whether this is real or something put on? You don't get that later. So that's where this, this um, individual, expressive individualism style comes in. It's with that second great awakening. Hmm. It's, it's interesting to note the etymology of ecstasy means to get out of yourself, whereas mm -hmm. with kind of the emotivism of much of the revivalism is almost kind of a getting into yourself. Yeah. 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 And I think personally that this is one of the things that plagues evangelicalism, that because there is so much ex emphasis on your conversion, I don't know how many kids I know that grew up as evangelicals that accepted Christ multiple times because they weren't sure they did it right the first time. Yeah. And the reason for that is because they were looking at their life and they didn't have the same feelings. They didn't have that same experience. So they were worried about whether or not they were actually saved. Where the real question isn't, did you have the experience? The real question is, do you have faith? Right. Yeah. yeah. And, that it, and it's interesting because it gets wedded to other aspects of, of, I think, the darker side of Romanticism's trajectory, and that we find as it enters in, of course, to the therapeutic, 
where where it becomes shifts over to no longer is it an experience that conforms to a kind of general evangelical experience, but it becomes my experience and my authenticity with God, my journey. You hear all this language now, my, you know, my adventure with God. And, and so it all gets, it, it all gets woven around the, the self and, um, and the, the particular expression of, of the self. We see it even in the music, right? Trying to express uh the, you know their art for the lord and uh, good there is a there is a real dimension there that is christian but it starts to take center stage and and i think this this grows out of of stuff that is very much steeped in romanticism yeah uh, there's the babylon b article that said something about the holy spirit couldn't come down because the fog machine broke <laughs> <laughs> But again, what's going on there? It, it it is you're using your music, you're using your lighting, your effects to try to generate an emotional experience. Because we believe that emotion is truth, that your emotions are a guide to truth when they're anything but. Yeah. Well, that's that that's the thing that I think that is lost, and why we're seeing such crazy stuff all around us even in the church, we, we've lost our ability to check it and challenge uh, these things. One of the things that I think is worth reflecting on is, is the, the fact that heresy is a kind of subtle misreading uh, or a subtle move away from the truth uh, that is hard maybe in the early phases of its development to identify. You know, so when we think about, say, something that is as slippery as Gnosticism. You know, we, we can say, well, you know, it's a, of course it's important to remember things that Jesus said, like, you know, uh, it's better to lose an eye than to have your whole body thrown into hell, and, or it's uh, the idea that, um, you know, what will you give uh, in exchange for your soul? You know, it, it's better to preserve that and lose everything else. And that, that sense of uh, distinction between, uh, you know, things that are important uh, can s slip into a kind of complete dis sort of uh, dismissal of the physical and the importance of certain cultural uh, realities that we enjoy because of God's grace in our lives and, and common grace in our culture. Uh, there's a, and that, you know, can lead to a withdrawal, withdrawal from just, you know, even ethics where people are just so wrapped up in their own uh, personal experience that they just lose touch with the outside world. Well, and it's that I think it's the, com the combination. I mean, for example, you I'm not the first to note. I think many note recently that that, you know, subjectivity in the right sense of the word in many ways is a byproduct of our faith. I mean, you read the Psalms, you know, praise the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me, let it praise your name. There's this communal language, but it isn't all about the self. It's it's about the self in communion. And it doesn't it doesn't lead just to individual. It it is about being a person of covenant and a person who enacts that within relationships and in the world. Um, but the the and so subjectivity um, is is something that you read Augustine. There's a lot of talk in the, in the same direction. I mean, he's one of the one who d develops this whole notion of the psych psychological analogies of the Trinity. Um, so so we have that there. It's a deformed Augustinianism, I think, that you start to see develop, as I said, with voluntarism and, and some of its byproducts. And so this takes the Augustinian notion of the significance of the will, but it makes it run the wrong direction <laughs> and run loose and, and severs it off from, again, the rational. And so they... The Romantics uh, celebrated, you know, this opposition to the rational, the universal, the essential, and so and that, so they were happy to see the conflicts that would arise from such irrationality. And I think that's really where, as Glenn was hinting at, the dark side really starts to take hold because once once you've you, we're seeing it today. Once you you've lost the 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 measure of rational discourse and the ability, in, especially in public resolve, to come to some sort of understanding, um, what you have is, is, you know, a competition of wills. And the only thing that can quell it 
is either going to be some kind of dominance or some kind of extreme violence. Uh, and this is, I think, where the negative kind of nationalism and the flip side totalitarianism become very attractive in, in worlds well, that are under these conditions. Well, you remember the great propaganda film, The Triumph of the Will. Guess yeah. which group of people, you know, were behind that. So maybe we should think a little bit about how, uh, you know, uh, various dark sort of uh, sort of forces kind of get uh, sort of uh, unleashed and even justified uh, through this kind of movement that we call romanticism. Do you have any thoughts on that, Glenn, how, how this all kind of works out? Yeah, that's actually where I wanted to head next. The curious thing is that it mingles, to, to pick one specific example, it ends up mingling with scientific theories, specifically Darwinism, Right. And when you combine this idea of, of uh, uh, the folk, the, the, the people um, who are one, per, one tribe, let's call it, um, what you get is the idea that that tribe needs to survive. And the way it does that is it outcompetes the others. Now, mm. let, let, let's, I, I want to have a little fun here with folks. How many people drive Volkswagens here? We've got a Volkswagen <laughs> driver here. Were you aware that it was the car of the Nazi party? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're talking about the, 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 the modern. <laughs> they've, they've repented. <laughs> but yeah. it's, the, it's, the, it's the wagon of the people, the folk. People yeah. that, you know, it's kind of fun. You know, you think about these things. <laughs> so what, what Hitler did is very specifically combine these romantic ideas about the folk, about the, you know, the tradition, the, you know, he really wanted to bypass Christianity and go back to the old folkish ways and, and so on, and then combined it with Darwinism. And what you get then is the idea that the Aryan race is the only fully human race. They're superior to all others, and therefore they have the right to take whatever they need from the lesser peoples around them by force if necessary, which it generally is. Yeah, so, there's, just something, there's something here I think it's worth noting, and I think it's often lost on us. The Jews were simply the first. It, they weren't the end of the process. In other words, if they had been able to you know, sort of secure their rule, there would have been others in line. Well, there already were. It, the Jews didn't start it. It was the handicapped. Um, it was homosexuals. It was gypsies. It was Slavs. Um, you know, and the Jews are somewhere in the middle there. I mean, so this, this is this folkish ideology coming out of a German romanticism run amok. German romanticism combined with really, really bad anthropology. Yeah. I mean, the Germans were not Aryans. I mean, but, you know, the... the the Aryans um, were the original, in, in terms of what the way they understood things, the Aryans were the original Indo-European people. And there was a German anthropologist who argued that they were actually the ancestors of the Germans, which is completely wrong. You know? mm. But um, the word Arya means noble in, in um, Indo-European. So they were the noble people, which, of course, the Germans meant us. Right. And Hitler picked up on this, this bad anthropological and linguistic argument. Hmm. Now, what's interesting, though, is that when you consider this, uh, this matter of your identity, pr your primary identity to, in Nazism is not as an individual, actually, in any form of fascism. You're not an individual. You're a cog in the wheel. You are part of the state. You're part of the folk. The yeah, and great. your individual existence doesn't matter. You're an ant in a colony. Now, the thing that I find striking about that is effectively that's what critical theory argues. Oh, yeah. yeah. We're back to it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All you are is a representative of your particular folk. And everything about you is determined by the folk that you're part of. Right. So yeah. this is this is even coming in and helping to shape um, modern political theory. Well, one of yeah. the, if you notice, if you notice kind of one of the tensions that are, that are going on, let's use American politics for this case. What you have is, is, is a worry within, within uh, the attention or anxiety between 
fighting groups, let's say right and left, and just in, a, in to use you know to use a typology here. What you have is a fear from the left that you have an irrational nationalism arising with someone like Trump, right? Or someone like a MAGA movement. There's, and their fear is this is an irrational movement and it's going to be dangerous because it's not going to be able to be contained. But the flip side is the, the alternative is a hyper irrational um, expressivism where they combine the radical um, self-expressive constructivism of identity, like transgenderism, all the different groups, mixed with a, a similar irrational group. And those groups are incommensurable. And so therefore, the only thing they can connect with is where they fit in the victim chain. And that becomes what unites them in a way to be an opposing force to the irrational or fearful nationalism. So nationalism can't be a good group. It has to be all these victims. Yeah, and you can add to that um, Philip Reef's idea of death works. Yeah. Um, if you look, let's, let's take the best example. You look at the LGBTs, and we'll just stop at T. Um, lesbians and gays historically never got along. Right. The only thing that they have in common, and add bisexuals in at this point, the only thing that they have in common with each other is they oppose traditional morality. That's the only thing that holds them together. Transgenders fit in even worse, because if you can be transgender, lesbian and gay no longer has meaning. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so it creates a very unstable cocktail and the only thing that holds them together is their opposition to traditional moral values. Yeah. That's right. So which means that when traditional mora morality goes away, and I'm not saying it will, but if it were kind of hypothetically, they'd be at, at each other's throats. They wouldn't last very long either. Uh, In a few years. One generation yeah. and they're done. Right. So I'd like to switch toward the, um, the more positive side of romanticism, because there's very definitely a dark side. You know, we have the whole expressive individualism thing. We have this idea of folk ideologies. Uh, we have all of these kinds of things. But there's also something really important in here that we touched on in our discussion about the medieval mind of C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. Lewis is impossible. He does not develop his worldview without the Romantic movement. Tolkien doesn't develop his worldview or his world without the Romantic movement. Yeah. Um, both of them were really, in a lot of ways, rebelling against the modern world. They're rebelling against the meaninglessness that comes from scientism. They're rebelling against technology. Um, they're rebelling against uh, uh, the ravaging of the planet. They're rebelling against the um, the abuse of traditional cultures, um, village life, those kinds of things. And they see the world in a radically different way than most of their contemporaries. And this is only possible because they were heavily influenced by the Romantics. Uh, people like William Morris, uh, George MacDonald, uh, and others. This might be a good point to bring up uh, a particular word in, that's a German word that uh, Lewis uses, Zenzup, uh, to talk about uh, this very thing you're getting at. Yeah, Zenzucht is an idea. Lewis translates it into English using the word joy, but he's got a very idiosyncratic definition of joy. Yeah. Uh, what, what, what it is, is you, the way I would describe it is that something in this world gives you a glimpse of something beyond this world something that is beautiful, something that is sublime, something that is infinitely desirable, but something you cannot attain, at least not in this life. Right. Yeah, right. What, you, what you have happening with, with Lewis, and I think Tolkien similarly, is you have them taking the, the good aspects of romanticism and placing them within a realism. I mean, with Lewis, you definitely have it right there in his Christian Platonism. 
Um, in this way, they're not detached from the rational order, but there there is an aspect to them that, go, just like the rational order, goes beyond the rational order um, to to the ground of all, all rationality. And so there is there is a, a, a rich web there. And I think with Tolkien, you see something similar coming from it more the from 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 a different kind of emphasis. But they, this is why you see figures today like uh, Alison Milbank and people who really respect Chesterton and um, Tolkien. And writes, she writes a book called Tolkien and Chesterton as Theologians um, because they, they see that you can, there is a healthy line in Romanticism that was also um, indebted to a lot of uh, realism and and could be re-employed within it. Anyway, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. yeah just well, so, just so our, oh, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, just so our listeners know uh, the correct spelling, because the way it's pronounced uh, as English speakers, we would never get to this uh, spelling. <laughs> but it's spelled S-E-H-N-S-U-C-H-T. It's pronounced Zainzucht. <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> so if you're looking it up, now you know how to spell it and look it up. But it, it means uh, longing, desire, yearning, or craving. There is, there's, there's actually a Welsh word which I don't remember off the top of my head, but it refers to a longing and a nostalgia for a place you have never been, a place you've never seen. And that's right. that's hitting the exact same the exact same kind of concept. Right. Um, the the thing that we have to remember here is that for all of the faults of the way Romanticism went, they were objecting to things that are genuinely objectionable. Yeah, right. exactly. So, you like know, when we think about, you can have a positive side to this. Yeah. So, like yeah. when we think about, you know, William Blake. I think it was William Blake who referred to the dark satanic mills of England. In other mm -hmm. words, there was a sense in which these, you know, industrial uh, sort of monsters were un inhuman and crushing people. And uh, there is a kind of uh, uh, perception that this is not good. I mean, this is un not healthy to see people sort of thrown into this machinery this way. So, I mean, you know, we can look back on it and say, well, don't you understand all the good things that came out of the Industrial Revolution? Well, of course we do. But who <laughs> would like to be involved, you know, in those factories, <laughs> particularly yeah. as, as children? Right. Yeah. So um, so these are these are things that are kind of in the in the air and people are along. Another thing is sort of the dry rationalism of certain forms of the Enlightenment or sort of certain ways that the Enlightenment gets expressed. If you want to like really get as dry as dust philosophy as you can possibly get read Kant you know <laughs> who would be considered you know like the the kind of the pinnacle uh, of enlightenment uh, rationality um, and so people are, re are sort of reacting to that they're saying this stuff is so dry so sterile so uh, just uh, lifeless how can anybody be inspired by it yeah I mean, they, they, you saw that similarly, they, you know, the criticism of what is called neo-Thomism in, in uh, post-scholastic theology, where they took Thomas's very rich uh, system and applied, it almost became like logarithms, you know? I mean, it became very dry, just, just uh, question and answer, and, the, and then the life was out of it. And this is why you could see the Renaissance influence with the Reformation, was to breathe life into something that had become so stale and, and dead. And so what you do is you have these oppositions develop. Things get very dry and, and rationality becomes very limited. And it leaves out all those aspects of humanity, the imagination, the metaphorical, you know, the, the analogical, all these aspects that, that aren't can't be reduced to, to just the, pro, the cognitive proposition. And I mean, well, you know, just explained within a, a kind of syllogism or, or a logical formula. And so you see the attraction is to retrieve a bigger picture. The problem is they retreat, they go all the way to the other side, and then they cut it off from rationality. And so I think what Lewis and Tolkien are doing, trying to bring those things into a, a proper balance. 
Yeah, right. it's interesting right. that you should bring up the Renaissance because I've long argued that the Renaissance is a romantic movement. Hmm. It's a reaction to the stresses of its own era where they're looking back to find a golden age in the past. They never really existed, but that they wanted to be there. They jumped over the Middle Ages and got to Rome in Greece. The later romantics jump over the modern period and land into the Middle Ages that the Renaissance rejected. But it's essentially the same kind of response. And what you find among the Renaissance humanists is their fundamental argument is dialectic or logic is not the road to truth. Rhetoric is. Hmm. Clarity is more important as a criterion for truth than logic is. Yeah. And there are huge debates about this in the 16th century, right, right as the Reformation is ro getting rolling. Now, it's, it's interesting, Glenn, because many people would associate um, rhetoric with uh, sophistry. There is a good argument to be made there, but their point was that what is clear is true. Yeah. Okay. L lucid brevity. Isn't that the lucid brevity with well, the Reformation? That, that's the direction, that especially the Puritans go, uh, where the Puritans are going to take this emphasis on rhetoric, and they're going to say, we don't need... If you ever want to see an example of rhetoric gone amok, <laughs> read the opening sentence, that's all you need, the opening sentence of Boccaccio's description of plague. I got that one in now, too. Boccaccio's <laughs> description of plague in Florence. It is so florid as to be almost impenetrable. <laughs> the, Puritans, the Puritans reacted to that, and they insisted that what you needed was plain and simple preaching. So they're very straightforward with this. Now they're, So they've got their own way of approaching rhetoric, They've also got their own way of approaching logic, which was actually following uh, Philippe Ramoux in France, where instead of syllogisms, he breaks everything up into binaries. But mm. that, that's a different issue. <laughs> uh, the point, though, is that the analogy to the Renaissance works because the Renaissance, just like the Romantic period, was skipping over the era that came before it as they understood time periods and finding a golden age in the past that they wanted to live in. Mm. This is why you get all the medievalism in the Renaissance and the, the obsession, the cult of antiquities it's called, this obsession with ancient Greece and Rome um, in the Renaissance. Both of them are doing the same thing. And in some surprising ways, they're reacting to very similar sorts of things. You've mm. got Enlightenment rationalism, you've got positivism, you've got all of that, but you also have scholasticism in a dry, barren, arid, yeah. by this point, typically a pretty barren, syllogistic way of, of building systems that yeah. have no real connection to life. Yeah. So one of the things here I think that's it's worth kind of reflecting a little bit on is this, this tendency that, uh, that we seem to have to either choose a golden age in the past to sort of measure ourselves against and get back to, or a golden age in the future against which to sort of mark our progress and sort of obliterate the past uh, hmm. because we think that the past is keeping us from it. Any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, you've got Star Trek, <laughs> at least the original Star Trek. At least the original Star Trek, it's changed. <laughs> yeah. The original Star Trek is this idea of finding a golden age in the future when reason and rationality and, and humane values and all of that are going to triumph but you're going to have the humane values triumph without any foundation for them. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Although I've got, although I've got a theory about classic Trek. So let me just throw out my theory about classic Trek Cause it's the only Trek just so people know, <laughs> but in, in, in classic Trek, what you have is a kind of interesting set of uh, personalities with Spock, the stoic bones, the romantic, and the personification of the Western tradition, James Tiberius Kirk. Now think about <laughs> his name. James yeah. the Just, the Hebraic tradition. Tiberius, you know, Roman. Kirk, church. He is the embodiment of the Western tradition. And if you, if you look at the, the episodes, uh, now you may not like William Shatner, but if you think about... Just like the particular episodes, the, the, the Christian themes are continually being brought up. 
uh, in different episodes. There, there's actually an episode where they go to a, a planet that's actually a 20th century version of the Roman Empire. <laughs> and they actually see the Christian faith emerging in that world yeah. at that time. So this is something that, you know, Gene Roddenberry, I think, you know, you look at it and you say, there's just no way, there's just no way this was a coincidence. <laughs> he's he's <laughs> well, kind of busy with this. And how many of their episodes involved de facto time travel? Yeah. You know, there was one where they were in Nazi Germany. There was right. one that, that they're in this Roman Empire thing. Um, it's a way of exploring the past through the lens of this idealized future. Right, right. There was even an episode where they was back, they went, tried to go back to Eden. There was a kind of an, but it was a bunch of hippies. I don't know if you remember that one. <laughs> they were drugged out hippies. But anyway, I so I, I could nerd out on classic Trek, but let's, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> no, you were going to say something there, Tom. Well, uh, just just back to the the, the previous point is, uh, I know in theology we will talk about sort of you know creation and eschatology, right? And 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 there is this attempt, like you said, of of people who who there is this attempt to go back to Eden, um, and as if we can, or there's an attempt to live now in light uh, or do sacrifice everything now to a particular future, a utopia achievable again usually through our own resources or, or the right kind of orienting of our, our, ourselves in an immanentistic way. Whereas, you know, the disruptive element in, in Christianity, that there is a fall that cuts us from, the, from going to that golden age, and then the fact that there is, there is a culmination, but it's going to be a culmination that's brought by an act of God, not, not merely by, um, you know, human endeavor. Um, so, that that places attention then. So what you have is, but then you add the Christian Church, which in some ways is the carrier of both. They 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 the retrieval of creation and the resurrection of Christ and the self enactment of that. Um, so there is a form of life that we are to accord to and does share in a certain kind of creaturely participation in the cre what it means to be a creature, and then moving it towards its perfection as it puts off the old and puts on the new. Um, and so we're able to hold those things together without making one become a, an ideology or, or a kind of uh, a delusion that we reinterpret everything else in light of. So there is a way to hold those things in place as a Christian that I don't think can be done outside of it in any significant way. And usually it's most harmful when they try it. It's interesting that we have it, you know, a, an angel with a flat flaming sword to keep us from going back to Eden. There's <laughs> no going back. Uh, and then as you noted, there's no ability that we possess to sort of amenitize the eschaton as, you know, Eric Vogland said, we can't actually bring that future into the present the way we would like. We have to wait for God to do something, the new creation, new heaven, new earth. In the meantime, there is a heaven above. And so we can kind of, we can transcend the, you know, sort of the limitations and the suffering that we experience in the moment because there is a God who providentially is ordering all things, who is above us and makes our lives meaningful in the face of all of the evil that we're up against. But that's a dimension to the Christian faith that is very unaddressed uh, today. You don't have anybody talking about that. Well, it's also worth noting that if you go back to the great works of medieval literature, all of them are ultimately stories of failure. Song of Roland, Roland dies. Beowulf, Beowulf dies. Uh, the Nibelungen lead, everybody dies. Um, <laughs> You know, yeah. I mean, you know, we, we, we you're cheering us up, Glenn. You're cheering us up. <laughs> Norse mythology, the world comes to an end, but yeah. there's a rebirth. I mean, uh, you know, the, but the, the reason why this is important is once again, look at Tolkien and Lewis. Look at the end of Narnia. The end of Narnia, Narnia is destroyed, but there's redemption. People go further up and further in. Look at the Lord of the Rings. Galadriel talks about fighting the long defeat. There's a very clear sense in Tolkien and Lewis, which is very deeply embedded in 
medieval literature and, frankly, in historic Christianity, that there is no way we are ever going to be able to achieve the end state. We're never going to be able to bring paradise in. That is going to take a cataclysmic act of God for that to happen. Now, all you post-millennialists out there, you can think about that all you want. But this is this is what the historic Christian tradition has argued. And it's one of the things that I think that this recovery of the medieval traditions, plus the experience of World War I, really embedded deeply in Lewis and Tolkien and their philosophy. Well, let me speak up for the post-millennial view. <laughs> I knew somebody would. <laughs> <laughs> there are two ways to think about it. One way is to think that we have the capacity to bring about, because of the work of the Spirit in the Church, uh, this uh, golden age. The other is that it's simply a uh, fact or simply a promise that we will see the gospel you know, uh, succeed in its progress across the world, but we still have to wait for God to do what only God can do, which is create uh, the new heaven and the new earth. I'm of the second school. <laughs> yeah, and I think and my um, point a little a minute ago was was more to say that more to more, more emphasizing the way in which people try to assume that their their action um, is enough. Um, you see this with sort of Protest, Protestant liberalism. Um, that we're going, we're bringing yeah. about progress. We're bringing about the kingdom, if you will. Um, and they, of course, they would gloss it with language of it, the Spirit's imminent work, and this is, of course, God's work. But we're, we're the, we're the stage on which this is taking place, and we're, we're the agents actualizing it. Um, we see this with panentheism of a uh, Jürgen Moltmann, right? That that uh, God is becoming more and more realizable and actualized as we are the, the consciousness of God enacting itself out in, in our actions in the world. So, so you have this kind of stuff going on. So that, that was kind of what I was after. Uh, I, I, do think, um, I do think, you know, the case, a different case could be made that to, to talk about the way in which divine and human action um, are not in competition and carrying this out. But I think, um, I think what, uh, Moltmann and and liberal Protestantism do is they melt them into each other. The human being is is basically the the vehicle through which the kingdom is coming, not God's action. Well, it reminds yeah. me of the of that publication, The Christian Century, which has got to be like the the greatest irony uh, in the history of Christianity. <laughs> name a publication that is founded right at the turn of the twentieth century with with sort of this uh, post-millennial liberal kind of optimism, the Christian century, right before World War I, the Depression, World War II, the Cold War, uh, the Holocaust, all these things. Uh, by the end of the 20th century, people have pretty much gotten over the idea that the 20th century would be the Christian century. <laughs> Everybody's <laughs> kind of looking back and saying, no, no, that wasn't the Christian century. But that's what people were thinking. Uh, when the 19th century was, uh, you know, turning and we entered the 20th century, there was a publication. For, a lot of folks don't remember it. I remember it. It was still sort of uh, available in many theological libraries uh, in the 80s and 90s. It, I don't know if it still exists. Maybe it doesn't anymore. But who knows? No one's reading it. I know that. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you want a good example of this sort of triumphalism, uh, just look at the hymn Jerusalem. Yeah. 19th century British hymn that basically says we're bringing in the new Jerusalem, you know, right. and it's England. Right. <laughs> That's interesting how it is sort of like uh, is synonymous with the empire. Yep. yep. <laughs> well, we've got to that point where we, we, we should probably wrap things up. Is there anything you want to say, Tom, as we do? We're going to have a little question and answer time here following the show with the folks who are present uh, for the live taping of the show. But uh, so don't run away. But do you have anything you want to you want to say, Tom, as we wrap up? Uh, no, just a, it's a it's a topic I think we could spend a long time with because, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a, a getting into some of the riches um, that we can delve into in terms of its impact. It's everywhere. And I think we could spend a lot of time just on the way and the, the significant and important aspects 
that Christians should grab a hold of um, and and orient the right way, because I think Lewis and Tolkien taught us much in terms of its value. Um, but it has a dark side worth worth always remembering. Right. Anything you want to say, Glenn? Yeah, I, I just want to put more emphasis. I mean, the negative side is something that we've hit on a bunch of times. I think we need to recognize the positive side, that you're never going to get the medieval mind of C.S. Lewis without romanticism, and that they were, in fact, reacting, however wrongly in many cases, to genuine problems that we as Christians should be opposing as well. Well, that's good stuff. Anyway, thanks a lot for listening to the Theology Podcast. We appreciate your interest in the show. Uh, we have people who support the show financially every month. We thank those folks for that. I mean, they, they, uh, the gifts really do uh, take care of the ongoing costs of producing the show, and it's uh, really appreciated. We also appreciate folks who uh, take the time to uh, give us five-star ratings on their podcast platform of choice and so if you want to do that again that's that's appreciated if you don't like us why did you listen so long why didn't you just <laughs> shut off the show you know just go away you know we, people don't people don't have to like everything it's okay but anyway uh we're glad that you like the show uh, enough to wait to, to to listen to the very end and uh, we'll be back uh and have another show next week thanks a lot bye-bye bye, -bye. bye, -bye. bye, -bye.